and customers paid us for this. That was the great thing. I think what, what not many deep tech companies have that most, and I would say really 90, 95% of our technology development, we didn't have to use VC money. We had customers paying for it. Um, and that's the great thing that we built our tech stack while having contracts that allowed us to show credibility, showing, hey, we can send stuff to space. Uh, we had four rocket launches so far, or payloads on four rockets. But we also now have a very, very defensible technology stack that, that's hard to copy. What's up, hustlers? I'm here with Mark Kugo, co-founder and CEO of Yuri. At Yuri, they're sending payloads to space to take advantage of microgravity so they can build higher quality molecules and other useful biotech assets. Did you know that it is easier to print a heart in space as it has no gravity? My gosh, how sci-fi is that? And the audacity. Let's give them a round of applause. During this episode, we discuss how the CDTM, Center for Digital Technology and Management cohort from 2014, produced more than 15 billion euros from 24 students, including Hanno of Personio and Thomas of Trade Republic, among others. We also discuss Germany's PR problem and why it might be a better idea to invest in startups solving difficult problems than the next SaaS for SaaS for SaaS. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Cedars, Europe's leading private investing platform. Since 2012, it has helped more than 1,000 businesses top up fundraising rounds totaling over £2.6 billion with additional investment from hundreds of thousands of investors. Cedars' portfolio includes Oddbox, Selma, and Revolut, as well as VC funds like Passion Capital, who have each raised millions on the platform. Their products now extend far beyond just primary equity raises, with their VC funds product giving eligible investors unprecedented access to venture capital as an asset class from as little as £100. To learn more, head to cedars.com. I studied industrial engineering, which is in Germany a concept of both electrical engineering and, and business, and did that working at Airbus uh, with the excitement for space. Went into a corporate for, for three years, so um, after three years you have a bachelor's degree and also one and a half years of work experience, so it's quite a, a time-efficient way to, to spend your studies. So I lived in Japan for a year during school and during my bachelor's went to South Africa and to Saudi Arabia, actually, I always chose countries that are furthest away from my home country to make the most radical experiences. And I think that has served me well to really yeah, widen my, my perspective and then not just, you know, have the typical Western European view on things. And I think the, the big thing that happened to me that also shaped my entrepreneurial journey was during a car accident we had in South Africa. So we were on a semester abroad there. We had cage diving with white sharks, jumping off cliffs, jumping off, you know, bungee jumps and then doing all these crazy things for a bucket list. And nothing happened, right? Everything went well. And then we were on a road with like 30 kilometers an hour. A car hit us and we kind of rolled down a hill, you know, super severe accident. My now wife, back then girlfriend, she was in hospital for eight weeks, super, super severe. But it also shows, you know, you can do all these crazy things and then accidents happen in the most boring things. And but what that made me think is really when, when I was in the hospital for, for a long time, somehow I was doing a six months corporate internship back then and I said, okay, 
that's definitely not the thing I want to do for the rest of my life, even though that might be something when going to bachelor's, that's something to strive for, like having a corporate career. Back then, I think someone gave me the Steve Jobs biography before I flew over and read that, read so many other books and, and decided directly after that trip with my brother to start the first company, if you want to call that. Back then, the iPhone, the App Store was still hot back in 2012. So with, with no experience, no coding knowledge, no whatsoever, me being a third semester bachelor students, my brother being 17, we just said, and, and me working full-time and studying full-time, right? And we created our first iPhone app, which went pretty well. And we started an adventure magazine where we interviewed the, the world's greatest adventurers like Reinhold Messner or David Lama, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. And that was really, that kicked off, I think, everything on my side. I said, okay, mm -hmm. this is the, the path I'm going to follow. Still thought, I, I think it makes sense to get some more training and professional education on that. So I had offers from UCL and Kings in London until I, I checked the price list. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. I decided to go to Munich. And I think that is the, the most impactful thing I've ever done was joining the, the Center for Digital Technology in Munich, the CDTM, which is a program organized by the TUM and the LMU in Munich. And the goal is to, to bring students from all sorts of study backgrounds together to build entrepreneurial projects to learn the hard skills and soft skills of building companies. It was super inspiring when I got into there and I, I really thought, okay, this is going to be potentially life-changing. But looking back now, I think I, I could have never anticipated what that has meant, yeah, what, what kind of crazy outcome of this class I was in happened. So I was in a class of summer 2014 and with about, I think, 23 or 24 students, all like 22, 23-year-old, super young. I think what united us was just this naive, crazy thinking that we can build large companies as, you know, six semester students. Uh, and now this class turns out to have created, I think, 15 startups and 16 that are now worth more than 15 billion in total and employ more than 3000 people. And that's just, you know, mind blowing uh, talking about that today and gives me goosebumps because, you know, these are all people you studied with, people that you don't think are much smarter than you. Definitely by a bit, but you know, not three times as smart. And just seeing your, your classmates building gigantic companies and very successful ones in the really defining part of the European ecosystem was, was super inspiring to watch over the last years. And biggest of them was Hanno Roman Arseni from Personio, Thomas from Trade Republic, Judith, who has La Familia as a partner, who just made big news last or this week. And also Pedro from Orban, who made a big news last week and were the funny thing is that Judith from La Familia has invested in Pedro with Orban, and she's mm -hmm. also invested in Personio. And Hanno personally is an LP again in Personio, right? And Hanno is also an angel in Yuri, and you know so many other. And we use Personio as a tool, and you know Personio uses demo desk from Alex as a tool. So it's a real a mafia that has <laughs> been created there. It's just incredible. Twenty-four students, and now fifteen billion plus. To be honest, I've never heard about it. Do you think Germany is not? that good at PR. If this would have happened, I don't know, in UK, I guess they would know how to be very proud of it. Or maybe it's just everyone in Germany knows about it, but not a lot of people outside of Germany knows about it. I think there's several reasons. The first reason, 100%, definitely Germany is, is really bad at PR. Germany's also really bad at commercializing great innovations. And there's, I could tell you a hundred examples where Germany made the initial mention and then some other country made the big bucks in the big industries. Like, solar power, MP3, you know, so many things came out of uh, amazing German labs and then they just didn't have yep. the guts or 
the the long-term thinking of building the industries around that. We're more inventors. Luckily, that has changed in recent years. I think that notion is in the heads of many important people now, but it's still you know a long way to go. And, and yeah, we're also really bad at selling ourselves. The best example I can give from Yuri, we had an engineer who um, applied with like a 16-year technical university in Munich. And I said, okay, no, that's you know super academic. I'm not sure if he's like really an entrepreneurial guy or like has industry experience. Turns out he worked three years at NASA, Johnson Space Center, and he worked like three years at Airbus. And, but he wouldn't, you know, tell us because that wasn't a NASA contract. It was kind of as a visiting employee. <laughs> why don't you tell us? If you, you know, why don't you put a NASA logo on your CV? You know, that's like, and he's like the best engineer I've ever met. He has a PhD in life support systems, knows everything about anything in space. And there's, there's almost a, a moon landing site that's named after what he found in a paper. It's, it's incredible. On the other hand, there was this Californian startup that one of our investors made us aware of saying, Hey, you know, there's X SpaceX engineers building this thing, you know, look at it. It's like super huge. I mean, you look at the LinkedIn of the person. He did like a three month internship at SpaceX or something, right? That's kind of the, the other extreme <laughs> where we have someone super oversold on like X SpaceX. Well, on the German side, we have these amazing engineers who have no clue what, what um, they, they can actually do. So quick anecdote, but I think that's, that shows in a, in a short way what's still lacking in Germany. And just words on CDTM, they did the math a couple of weeks ago. It actually has a higher unicorn ratio than Stanford. And of course, Stanford is mm. much, much larger in terms of like the students, uh, but in terms of, you know, relative terms, it's, it's quite remarkable what, what has been built in those you know, little batches. Tell me about a moment that you decided to found Yuri. Like where, where did the idea come from? How did you meet your, you know, initial co-founders? And then you're like, okay. Let's do it. Let's go full in. The CDTM had my first company for about two and a half years. We sold that afterwards way too early. So fortunately that that didn't grow as, as as big as we wanted, but I always kind of wanted to have that entrepreneurial experience. I then actually went back to aerospace. I worked at Rolls-Royce building up a digital unit with the goal to to create a spin-off company early on. So the CEO at some point after about two years told me, hey, Mark, you have unlimited budget, you know, pitch me some ideas and run and, and create a spin-off company in kind of these industry 4.0 cases. And that was exactly what, what I thought was interesting and it's going more B2B, going more into the aerospace industry. And then I was at a founders event pitching my idea and hopefully pitching to uh, inspire people to join my team. And in that audience, uh, it was Maria and Chris uh, sitting uh, that just were at Airbus um, and had similar thoughts of creating a spin-off company out of Airbus. Uh, and then, so they chatted with me afterwards and, uh, instead of me trying to hire or me successfully hiring people, they basically hired me out of that, like two months into that journey. And uh, I've never looked back. I mean, when they told me what they're working on, this was the most exciting thing I've ever heard and the, the, the craziest thing I've ever heard. So I said, okay, I have to do this. This is like a once in a lifetime opportunity or also topic where, where you think, okay, this. I just have to do this without asking too many questions. Let's just jump in and then see where this this, this goes. <laughs> I mean, just to just to read the tagline. I don't know if that's changed since since you met them, but we leverage microgravity to create tomorrow's cures with our in-house developed space labs and ground simulators. So my understanding is actually that you use space to get into some processes and systems that you can't do on earth. Do I understand that correctly? 
Correct. Yeah. Basically, we have a, a novel environment of conditions. Most important, we have no gravity that allows us to do things that are either super hard or impossible to do on Earth today. Do you have some examples? I also know that you have already like 50, 58 clients or so. Can you give us some examples or a sense like who uses you guys and, and how does it work? If you look at how drugs today are developed, we have to understand a protein in the body that's responsible for disease. And to understand a protein, we need to you know look at it at the surface structure level because we all know from COVID, we have an antibody that kind of attaches to it, kind of blocks that and inhibits that. And that's you know how typical drug discovery works. You want to understand the surface of a protein to find a blocker to block that disease. And to understand the surface structure, it's super hard today to just watch it with a microscope because it's so tiny. So what people do is they grow the protein in a crystal form and they shoot an X-ray beam at that crystal. And from the pattern they see on the other side, they calculate what the surface structure is. That means the better the crystal, the better your picture of the surface structure, the more precise your drug will attach to that. And crystals, also protein crystals, because there's no convection or sedimentation, so nothing falls to the bottom or rises to the, to the top, because you don't have those effects in microgravity, you have crystals that grow without defects or with fewer defects in more uniform ways and also larger. And, and that is all beneficial in understanding proteins better. One example um, that's very tangible, I would say, for, for the pharma industries, started out the first two years actually bootstrapping, building the technology stack to bring biology to space in a very efficient way. And customers paid us for this. And that was the great thing. I think what, what not many deep tech companies have that most, and I would say really 90, 95% of our technology development, we didn't have to use VC money we had customers paying for it. Um, and that's the great thing that we built our tech stack while having contracts that allowed us to show credibility, showing, hey, we can send stuff to space. Uh, we had four rocket launches so far, or payloads on four rockets. And, but we also now have a very, very defensible technology stack that, that's hard to copy and then would need, you know, a lot of experience and capital to, to build from scratch. And, and how do you go about of building a tech stack that is just so different than any other industries? Yes. So, so, so the first point, we, we got this from our experience at Airbus, that kind of knowledge about the industry and knowledge about technology. So Maria and Chris worked 10 to 15 years in the life science payload department there at 10 or 11 missions to the ISS. So they really, you know, been there, done that. And in the end, the innovation we brought in isn't rocket science if you want, right? We Today, we have these cost plus contracts in space, <laughs> pun intended. We have these cost yeah. plus contracts where NASA asks you about your costs and you say a million dollars and then, okay, you get 10% profit on top of that. So everyone has mm -hmm. an incentive to keep costs high to make more profit, right? That's kind of the current state of old space, as we call it. And we were the pirates, the kind of troublemakers who said, okay, we don't want to play that game. We just reuse our hardware. We build in modular blocks that we can just flexibly recombine. We can skip most of the NASA safety processes because all the material is already NASA certified. And then we can just refurbish and fly again. And just by doing this alone, in addition with some, you know, process improvements, we, we made the time and, and cost to bring bio to space by about 10 X. And that was really what, what kicked off our kind of service in the marketplace that suddenly so many other space agencies, research institutes, pharma companies had the possibility 
to bring um, biology to space in a much more efficient manner. And that allowed us as a tiny startup in the beginning to, to win a NASA, a European Space Agency, a, a pharma contract um, early on. Amazing. And how do you look at the industry? So do you think that the industry is just going to expand on the niche that you're focusing right now? Or do you foresee that you're going to become like this expert in payload for life sciences and you would go into different type of niches? So what we re realized early on, it's super hard to, to just sell a lab or sell a new environment because the pitch to pharma would be, hey, we have this gravity switch. We have this possibility to go to this amazing new environment. Why don't you book a flight with us for, I don't know, 500K to 4 million, depending on how often you want to fly. And maybe you find something cool and then you can take these insights to develop some new product and that, you know, five years down the road will give you an ROI. That's a, that's a really hard sell. So we strongly believed early on is to really get the big money behind this and really show the value is not scientific papers but it's showing real commercial products being produced or uh, triggered in space. And then people will also ask about your platform. We hopefully they'll buy our assets and they buy a product and they're like very successful. But then they also ask, hey, uh, where did you get them from? Oh, we got them from space. Oh, cool. Can I also buy a book, a flight on your rocket ship, you know, literally. Um, and we think that will create a positive flywheel where you create assets and those assets will also be beneficial for the platform. But I'm um, skeptical that the platform alone will be sufficient to excite really large industries on Earth. And that's why we decided after two years of bootstrapping, the technology stack is ready. We now use that as an unfair advantage to now build our own biotech assets, right? We didn't want to wait for others, convince them, try to convince them that they built their assets on our platform. No, we had to show two or three, four, five, maybe a thousand of our own products and then the world will follow. And that was basically the, the pitch to investors back then. We said, we're, we're a bunch of space engineers, seven people. We want to build a biotech company. Do you want to give us money to hire bio people so we can become a biotech company? And there was uh, quite a bold pitch, but apparently it worked out and we, we found uh, most likely the best partners in the world to join us on this journey. And today um, I can probably say we are a biotech company. We have a bio team, uh, we have a bio lab, we have first bio products and that has been quite a ride to see from, you know, hardcore engineering space company with like three or four founders uh, growing to now 35 people with now a lot of bio people as well. Not being a biologist myself, that was, I think, the, the biggest challenge. I was kind of wondering, what, what do you mean by biotech assets? Yeah, I mean, it could be anything, right? A biotech asset could be a drug, it could be some antibody it could be a protein that's interesting some process um basically we want to go beyond just a fee-for-service of bringing other people's science to space we really want to discover develop manufacture something in space that is an asset or a product here on earth 10 years mm -hmm. down the road that could be a 3d printed art in space that's maybe the most tangible one you know you have don't have gravity you can 3d bioprint layers of cells much more easily than on Earth, because on Earth, gravity makes it collapse and you need artificial scaffolds. One in space, you can just layer by layer print it. You print the heart in space, you bring it down and you implant it on Earth. And that's that's a very science fiction way of seeing <laughs> what we do, but technically it would be possible and eventually we'll get there. Assets we look at today is mostly in the synthetic biology field, 
because uh, without gravity, with radiation, it's a very unique environment that leads to unique adaptations, mutations of microbes like bacteria, yeast, and space. And what we've seen is often they increase their yields. They become more thermostable. They um, create proteins or uh, compounds that we've never seen on Earth or that are better than the ones on Earth. And the advantage with going to Synbio for us is that we don't need large manufacturing capabilities in the first place. We need very tiny capabilities in the beginning and tiny meaning perfect match for the bioreactors we've already built. And the great thing is it fits also in the timelines of our typical missions. That means we can use the customer missions we have. So customers pay us for the rocket launch, pay us for the service, and we can piggyback our own product development on top of that, which means we have almost no additional cost to create our own bioassets because customers pay us for the fixed cost. And that's that's a great thing in, in surveillance technology that it's quite flexible doing that. If you want to print a heart, you know, there's uh, one or two more requirements to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. And also, you just mentioned that you partner with with some some great investors in this journey. So I know that fifty years, and also Apex invested. If I if I'm not wrong, I think you've raised around four million euros. Given that you're a deep tech company, that doesn't sound like a lot. It, it doesn't sound like enough to maybe do whatever you want to do. I have two questions on that. What is the biggest challenge now? And how did you split your journey on milestones so then you can still show to the investors like, okay, this is the next milestone. We've achieved it. We need more money to unlock new capital. Yeah, great question. I think to start with, we've been very intentionally from the start to not build the expensive infrastructure that can explode in space. Um, namely being rockets or spaceships. And one, because we think there's a lot of capital and way smarter people doing that already. And there's 100 launch companies globally. There's more than 20 companies building space stations or spaceships. Um, and, and second, with this numbers we're really seeing, this will be quite a crowded space where we can just pick the winner and the most affordable, most reliable partner we can work with. Right? So we don't have to reinvent the wheel on that, I think. That's where we decided mm -hmm. we'll do everything downstream from that. So we really work with the end markets on Earth. And that is, of course, much more capital efficient than trying to build the infrastructure first. So that's one thing why I think with fairly limited capital, we can build a deep tech company. The second point is that we've had a revenue early on uh, in the seven figures from you know government research institutes that, that pay us for a service that also, as said before, helped us fund our tech development, which we didn't have to raise venture capital for, which is always, I guess, the better option, unless mm. you know, speed is the number one KPI. And the challenges right now is really now, and that also ties to the third question in terms of milestones, the next inflection point for us is really showing the commercial inflection point of our bioassets. And so the milestones, if you look at it, was mm. first, can we send stuff reliable in space and back and, you know, have that service and excite customers to do that? And I think there's a big, you know, check on that one. We we have four rocket launches. We have customers in 22 countries and four continents. We have, I would say, the, the world's most efficient and capable space biotech stack. And so that, that all is kind of taken a box. The second one was really, can we transition from a space nerd engineering company to really a biotech company that focuses on creating bioassets? And can we hire that team also there? And that was basically from the round until today, the big milestone I think with, with confidence can say that we've achieved. So we've hired them, probably the best chief scientific officer you would find on this planet. 
And we've had uh, also the best support network with Chris Mason's lab in New York, Stefan Oschmann as the CEO of Merck, uh, one of the biggest pharma companies in the world. Um, so I think we really showed that we can transition from this very nerdy engineering driven culture company to a much more life science biotech focused one that still uses space as a neighbor. And the next inflection point really is, can we find interesting first assets? Can we create first results that are commercially valuable? And also there, we, we've mm. made some great progress and which I, I can't share too much today, but it's, it's yeah. incredible what, what the team has developed and found in that end. And now the next inflection point, that's what actually we're, we're raising right now. So if anyone is interested in this symbiont space, the next inflection point really is to now commercialize what we found. So really, and there's very few examples to, I would say no real worth mentioning example of an asset in bio that has changed in space and has been sold on a large scale on earth. And that's really where we really want to be the first ones to show that. But that's for us the next selection point. And then can we replicate that? But focus all is now on commercialization and, and sales and, and biz dev, and which also is quite untypical for maybe a deep tech startup. You know, often mm. deep tech startups, they, mm-hmm. they're like 10 years pre-revenue. And we've from the start always been very revenue focused and driven. So, so now on the bioasset side, time has come to to sell. And how much are you fundraising? We're raising ten million right now. Ten million. And did you get any questions on on market size? How do you how do you tackle that? Yeah, that's of course in our case a super yeah fuzzy question or, or, or task. You can break it down into like the current space bio research market. You know, which is a very tiny hundred twenty million bucket of government funding that you can apply for. I mean, we've won some of that which of course is not really growing or interesting. And then for the bioassets, you have to really look at the different segments. So we're looking at drug discovery and synbio, and then you just really have to see, okay, what additional value do you bring in such a market? Let's look at synbio. You have an enzyme that is used a billion times a year in some, you know, old protein or, or pharma biotech use cases. And if you can improve that by doubling the yield or doing more term stable, you unlock completely new value chains. And so that is super hard to kind of put into our direct TAM, SAM, SAM, whatever, you know, startup buzzword you want to use. But I think if you, if you just look at the general problem, you know, McKinsey said it's like a, a four trillion a year opportunity that also buys fields. Everyone we talk to mm-hmm. needs better microbes, better proteins, better compounds. Um, and it's not a binary outcome whether we do it or not. It's just a numbers game. And we're building currently the, the world's largest base microbe genomics database and then, you know, training AI models on that in the next step. If, if you look at it from this angle, you could say, okay, you know, the, the pie is potentially huge and, and there's many shots at goal. So we'll find a couple of those winners, which then create large royalty and, and, and kind of licensing deals. And that definitely make this a venture case. That's that's so cool and so science fiction. It's like you're reading me, you know, from a sci-fi book. Uh, but I I can definitely see that happening. Um, and I'm just so glad that that you guys at Yuri already started. It seems that you guys are very practical, have a very very um, great team with previous experience, but also very very ambitious. Just to change gears a little bit and get personal, did you have any moments in your journey where you were, shit, I don't think this is going to work? So many. I think the the most important one was early on. And my wife was actually super happy that, you know, I was like two years in a corporate journey 
and then telling her, yeah, by the way, I'm, I'm going back to the startup world and no worries. And this, this time is different because we had a 650k ESA contract that they told us, Hey, we love what you're planning. We have like 600k open as a budget, as a government agency. We had this mission for 2 million. If you can do that for only 600k, we contract you amazing, you know, and we had a big mm -hmm. party and say, Hey, this is going to kick off this amazing journey. So we quit our jobs. We took a, a 200k bank loan where we personally liable. And I went home that, that evening telling my wife, Hey, you know, what could possibly go wrong? We have this large contract. You know, yes, we have this bank loan, but you know, I mean, we have a contract to start with. Which startup does, does that ready? I had a first intern, mm -hmm. started working on this project. And then three months into the journey, the scientist had a fight with ESA, which turns out that ESA then decided to cancel the contract. Uh, oh no. <laughs> so everything that we've kind of, not everything, of course, but you know, a big push that made us quit our jobs and start this company is now suddenly gone. And this is really in that moment, I can laugh about it now. It's kind of a funny anecdote, but that week or that day was just absolutely horrible and shitty, especially when you have a bank loan where half of it you've already spent on kind of doing the first steps, right? So that was quite hard coming back home and saying, you know, the country, uh, the co that contract we had where we kind of based the company on, it's kind of not, it's not happening. <laughs> uh, that was hard. Like, you know, that bulletproof plan that I told you about, <laughs> it's not that bulletproof. Exactly. <laughs> and and I, yeah, I can like tell, tell 10 more stories on that caliber. I think it, it just showed that in this case, what really inspired me about them, my, my two co-founders, but you know, in that case I met randomly, so we weren't friends before, so there was a risk, you know, that couldn't work out, but seeing that they said like they were one one day sad and then a day after okay let's get together let's make a list of everyone we know in the space industry and we call them from morning to evening telling them about how amazing we are in their service and we'll find a new contract and, and literally within like 10 days we won a nasa contract right i'm like incredible but we were like amazing. literally morning to evening being on the phone being on email trying to tell the world hey we have something amazing here do you want to contract us and we would have never found that NASA country. We would never have found that partnership. And, you know, I love ESA, but I think NASA is even the stronger brand to, to start with as a startup to win as customers. And so yep. I think we, we've had early on the ability to turn adversity into a success and turn a, a big failure um, into something to, to go out even stronger um, just by, by pushing harder. And, and that really, you know, that early failure also shaped us as a founder team. And we always use that example when, when shit hits the fan today, we're saying, hey, you know, we've been through this shit back then, which almost killed the company in like two months into the journey. We can do this, you know, that, that, that's nothing compared to that. So that, that's really also something positive we, we pulled out of that. And what do you think most investors get wrong about biotech? Yeah, I mean, I, I could maybe see it a bit broader about deep tech, maybe also hard tech. I think you know, people, I mean, you mentioned before, always have this notion of it's super capital extensive, you know, it takes a long time, um, super risky. And there's definitely cases where, where that is, you know, the case. But there's also, I would say, so many, maybe even the majority, where that's not the case compared to other VC cases that might be much more capital efficient or easier, right? And look at all these 10 minute delivery startups or startups that the world might not need so much. <laughs> I, I would rather spend all this money on real CapEx and, you know, IP and then things that progresses the world than, than a marketing mm. burning, you know, trying to win a winner takes all market in, in a marketing game. 
Um, so I think comparing to that and comparing to many other venture cases, I think it's not that risky and it's not that capital intensive than you would think. And it's also much more solid and, and long-term and, and substantial uh, in terms of the value you create, right? It's not just, you know, one app that might be hyped today or one service that's, that's super hot right now, but two years not. Same for B2B SaaS, right? I mean, there's so many companies now saying, okay, we, we just can't add another SaaS on, on our software stacks. It has become so complex. So even there, you would argue, okay, that might also not be the most sustainable business case in many cases. So, but if you build a fusion reactor, if you build, you know, rockets, if you build biotech companies that crank out drugs against breast cancer, hard to argue and that, you know, this, this might lose its value over time. So there's a really good on that Y Combinator video on hard tech companies and with Jared. And he really talks about these, the misconceptions that often one thing is hard, the tech development, but everything else is easier. You know, there was an example of boom, you know, the, the new Concord, this one startup is building. Um, and, you know, mm. building the technology obviously is the hardest thing of that whole startup and it's super hard, but everything else, you know, getting press. I mean, who wouldn't write, if you're a tech crunch, would you write about a new Concord or would you write about a new shopping app, right? Um, yeah. Hiring, you know, would you join a rocket ship company or would you join the yet another B2B SaaS company? Um, competition, you know, um, how many companies are building the new Concorde? Right? So there's so many areas that become easier, actually, if you're hard to company and um, compared to if you're building what, you know, most people are trying to build some e-commerce B2B SaaS or like marketplace. So yes, the tech development is the challenge and yes, it comes definitely with, with its downsides. And, but there's also a lot of upsides compared to the current VC focus. Absolutely agree. And I think you said it so well. Like I also think that the the market cycle has turned, the greed, the, the bubble has burst. You gotta solve a real problem to get funding now, which which I think you guys are doing. And I'm really, really also excited about the the strategy that you guys have to build the biotech assets. And last question, if Mark from five years ago would listen to this episode, what would you tell him? Yeah, it's funny because the event I mentioned before when I met my co-founders, that's almost on the day five years ago. I think oh, it was wow. November 2018. So it's quite remarkable. So I would tell myself, go to that event because I was in Tokyo on a business trip coming back that night before super jet lagged and I was almost not going there. And also my two co-founders, they were at the wrong campus of the university I and mean, they almost went home, right? So I would tell myself, wow. go to that freaking event. Some magical thing will happen there. And I will also tell them it will be brutal, but uh, just push through and uh, believe that you'll figure things out. Um, luckily, looking back, I, I wouldn't have needed that advice. So I did it uh, by heart ready, but I would maybe just push myself even more to, to do that. Love it. Go to that event. Serendipity is real. Mark, any, any other uh, words that you would uh, want to give to the investors listening? Or should they just kind of summarize our talk and then make up their mind? I can say one sentence, which you know, is often used in the climate crisis. Uh, we have to touch atoms and not just bits. Uh, we can solve the biggest crisis by just adding a software layer kind of platform to account anything. Uh, we have to touch the real world uh, in any areas. I think that's the, the most important message I want to give out. So. I know software is eating the world, uh, but the world uh, consists out of atoms. And so it's time now to really invest into solar, wind, fusion, space, uh, biotech. Uh, it's got to be a bright future.